Uh, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Sarah Tabbitt, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at UCSF. I'm also a member of the PCICS podcasting committee. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with uh, Stacy Bedford from London and Peter Reimsberger from Geneva. Hello, you guys, and thank you for joining me this morning. Thanks for having us. Um, so the topic that we're going to focus on uh, for this um, podcast is um, invasive and non-invasive uh, ventilation. Um, so I think what we'll do to start out with is um, start talking about non-invasive ventilation and then escalate up to um, invasive ventilation. So Stacy, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the different interfaces you have for connecting the um, CPAP to the patient and depending on what age they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, one thing I would say is whatever range you decide on in your unit is to make sure that you have a tool for deciding which mask to use quite quickly because when we make the decision to go to NIV, it needs to be speedy and your staff need support in choosing that. Um, so you can have a, you can have helmets. I don't have much experience with that. There's um, full face, there's oronasal and there's nasal. Um, if you're in the acute NIV phase, which is the sort of main thing that we're, I, I guess we're focusing on now, is we really the ideal solution would be to have the nose and the mouth covered to make sure that you can maximise support. The only time I would say that you would veer away from that is if you have a patient that has excessive vomiting or uh, trouble with um, secretion, saliva management, then in that situation you might try a nasal, but you're very quickly going to move to nasal. So mm -hmm. it's, I mean, cost effectively, you really should just go straight to nasal. Um, the other thing um, that I would say with that is, um, it sounds silly to say, but if the parents are telling you that the, it's a baby and they will only settle with a dummy, don't try oronasal. You can't pop it inside the mask. Um, go straight to nasal. The baby uh, needs the to dum rest. A dummy is a pacifier? Yes, that's oh, right. Okay. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> just trying to be clear. <laughs> so in that situation, your best bet is to allow them to have a dummy, let them get some sleep and pop a nasal mask on. Um, it's really important to know um, whether your mask needs to be vented or non-vented, so be familiar with your equipment. Um, and that's very much based on whether you've got a passive or active um, uh, circuit and whether it's um, a two-limb circuit or single-limb circuit. So you've really got to know your machinery. Um, it's easy, kind of easier to know that with the sort of home-style ventilators and towards the invasive ventilators, but those sort of hybrid ventilators that are more advanced NIV ventilators, um, you need to know whether there's a vent on the circuit or not, um, and so to know whether or not you need to choose a vented mask, and that's really important for CO2 outlet. Um, and one thing I would just touch on quickly is, is fitting the mask quickly um, should be a two-person technique so that one person can apply the therapy and the other person can, in a slow, steady manner, apply the um, headgear in a really smooth transition. Um, and, can I um, ask a question about applying it? Do you yeah. usually put, say you think that the patient's going to need like a CPAP of 10 or something like that, mm -hmm. do you usually start with CPAP of 10 or do you start with a lower pressure to get them adjusted to the match, mask and then slowly when they're not paying attention turn, turn up the support? Yeah, generally probably um, start, see if you can get away with a sort of 5 to 7 mm -hmm. um, and then seeing what the patient's response is and then not being afraid to go up as mm -hmm. you need to and then their tolerance will be better. Um, just through that. Um, it's useful thinking about the fact that we used to need to apply masks really tightly because they weren't fitting to paediatric patients, um, but the manufacturers have caught up with this, they're better fitted to the contour, 
um, and we a lot of them are built on the fact that it's a cushion of air on a soft silicone so they don't need to be tightly applied mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's really important for them to work properly and to not um, apply pressure to the patient's face. Um, Peter, could I ask you a question about um, moving from high, like high, do you call it high flow nasal cannula in the in high your flow nasal, high, high flow nasal cannula? Yeah. So if you have a patient on high flow nasal cannula, it probably depends on obviously depends on the age. At what point do you tran recommend transitioning from high flow to a to a sealed CPAP? Well, to be honest, in in our place, high flow nasal cannula is more used in the emergency rooms in the wards. And in an ICU, we tend very fast to go on, on CPAP or with mask devices because uh, it has been shown in many studies, in the European Stramontane study, for example, the less efficiency of high flow nasal cannula in patients with bronchitis or uh, with uh, inflammatory lung disease. For uh, patients that just need a little bit support or for weaning, that's probably different. So coming off of CPAP, sometimes switching to high flow cannula for patient comfort is, is something to try. But we would not suggest, I would not suggest to go for everybody in high flow cannula. And I think if you really need anonymous ventilation, you're much better off with a correct uh, CPAP setting with masks uh, or uh, prongs or, or then uh, even with uh, some assisted support mm -hmm. modes. Um, Stacy, let me ask you a little bit about feeding on um, on CPAP. Um, do you do you guys feed it all by mouth, or do you use tube feeds? And if tube feeds, do you usually feed in the stomach or uh, jejunum? Yeah. So in the very acute phase, if we're talking about acute respiratory failure, we would stop feeding altogether until we're out of that sort of super acute phase. Um, and then, obviously, once they're a bit more stable, start to establish feeds. But generally, in the patient group that I care for, we would be going for tube feeding. Um, if it's more of our sort of liver population comorbidities, they might be um, NJ fed, but generally sort of our acute patients, it's nasogastric tube. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have experience of really in the acute phase giving oral feeds. Um, okay. And do you usually push towards full and full enteral nutrition or do you balance it with some IV parental nutrition? It really it very much would depend on the patient group, yeah. I would say. Um, I don't know, Peter, you might be better. Well, we mainly push for enteral nutrition through gastric feeding tubes. And I think what is important, as soon as you use higher CPAP levels or higher pressure levels, and that's usually about 8 to 10 on above, make sure that you convince the stomach. So mm -hmm. we keep the gastric feeding tube after feeding an hour later open again and actually let the air escape. And that's okay. the thing is very important. In some smaller children, even sometimes you put the second tube in mm -hmm. just for venting. Mm -hmm. And then do you usually use bolus feeds or do you do continuous feeds when you're on the... We usually we, we, start, we do bolus feeding, yeah. Mm -hmm. If it's supported, just the patients that really do not support it, we do continuous feeding, but the continuous feeding is some, is some small intermittent pauses. Sim similar for you? We actually mostly we would go with continuous, mm -hmm. um, but I, I think there's a movement towards bolus, and I think that should be, we should be exploring that. Okay. Um, Peter, could I ask you a little bit about um, when you're, a, you're escalating a CPAP and perhaps you've gone to BiPAP? At what point along that pathway um, do you make the decision to go to invasive ventilation? And then um, along those lines, do you consider that 
for the cardiac patient, do you consider that at a different point for a patient who's got problems with the left side of the heart versus a patient who has problems with the right side of the heart? Actually, there's three scenarios, as you mentioned. There are the two cardiac scenarios, and there is the respiratory failure scenario. And I think we just keep in mind that when we talk about ventilation, we talk about the lung and the heart all the time. So uh, if when you take from the literature data on uh, when you consider failing non-invasive methods, so when you're already in a BiPAP mode, it comes pretty clear that you should, in this patient with respiratory failure, not wait too long. So if classically nowadays we say, if you don't have a response within the first hour of a non-invasive ventilation trial, uh, not have any improvement in oxygenation with a reduced respiratory rate, or even a stable, more stable CPAP, you should consider intubation. There is strong evidence and from the adults as well as from the pediatric now that delaying intubation may uh, worsen outcome prolonged long ventilation times. This almost every study shows the same. If you think more on the cardiac patient, I think you have to think a little bit different. The question is how much uh, pressure swings, intrathoracic pressure swings, the patient will generate by himself by having big respiratory uh, efforts breathing in, and with this you have big variation in intrathoracic pressures. So if you think about the left heart, that's probably not a good idea, and that's the fading left heart that is uh, first intention classically is positive pressure application and continuous pressure, but uh, if you see that you still see variations in blood pressure, right, uh, right and, and big variations uh, in his pulse that you even can uh, palpate, so I think then you should go pretty fast uh, into intubation to take over control and to apply correct positive pressure. For the right heart, we like to have classically spontaneous breathing because it should help to uh, reduce the, the uh, afterload on the right ventricle, as we know. Uh, again, there it has some limits. You know, so if the patient is working hard and have perhaps what we always have to consider as some degree of lung disease, a bit of lung edema, post-surgery, and so on. Uh, he may have very fast atherosclerosis, his vascular resistance goes up, and then you cannot actually uh, keep it under control, usually with non-invasive ventilation. So again, there, uh, an intubation would be probably wise to not to do too early, too late, mm -hmm. because if it's too late, uh, again, there's clear data around, the risk associated in patients with major distress, uh, uh, late intubation is associated with more complications already during intubation, and the risk that the patient crashes at this moment because he needs some sedation is pretty high. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Stacy, can I ask you, uh, speaking of sedation, can I ask you, um, for your uh, patients you have on CPAP, do you find that you need to sedate them a little bit more to keep the masks on? Or do you have any policies around that? We don't tend to. I'd say the group that um, is probably in our favour on the post-extubation, if we go to um, non-invasive support, then they tend to be weaning from sedation, which mm -hmm. is probably in our favour. Mm -hmm. um, but on, in an acute phase sort of escalating treatment, we don't tend to sedate them. But I know there are you know, other units in the UK that do use sedation, mm -hmm. um, quite a lot of sedation actually in awake NIV patients. Um, and then speaking of intubation, Peter, or maybe Stacy too, what's your practice for the breathing tubes? Do you usually use nasal uh, and breathing tubes or oral, orally placed breathing tubes? We, in our unit, use as a pra standard practice uh, nasal intubation. Mm -hmm. And what's, what's your 
pluses and minuses as to why you prefer the nasal over oral? It's, for us, it's mainly nursing that asks us because it's easier to fix, less uh, mobilization of mm -hmm. the tube, uh, and uh, easier uh, cleaning and uh, mouse hygiene. Mm -hmm. And then they can have their, what do you call it in their mouth? <laughs> the dummy. <laughs> the dummy. <laughs> the dummy, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's better than sedation. <laughs> and what's your, at King's College, what are you doing? Unfortunately, my experience is different um, because of our patient group, because we have a lot of liver patients with um, clotting problems, uh, and we have um, patients with increased ICP. Um, so our patient group, our, our specialist patient group, isn't ideal for nasal intubation, um, but obviously that, that sort of practice ekes out into your general population. So um, we have to remind ourselves in winter that a nasal tube is fantastic and the nurses love it when we do mm -hmm. get a nasal tube. Mm -hmm. Use less sedation, interact more with the patient and hopefully reduce ventilated days. That's very interesting. And so then along the lines of sedation, Peter, when you have a patient who's invasively ventilated, where, which are the patients where you feel like you really need to keep them more sedated or maybe even muscle relaxed? And which patients do you let them be awake and, and sort of fighting against the ventilator? Again, if we can split it up, a little bit question in two, that's uh, in the cardiac patient, I think uh, if he needs intubation, it's probably better to have a, a basic sedation, certainly he, no question if he's at risk of pulmonary hypertension crisis. Uh, in the uh, respiratory failure patient, these patients may have some important respiratory drives, sometimes even pathologic, and we see this mainly in viral diseases, systemic disease or pneumonia. And these patients, if they take big efforts and you try to do best your assist mode, either as an SIV mode or as a as an AC mode or even then as a pressure support mode, if they do a big inspiratory effort, they lower the intrathoracic pressure. You apply outside the machine that follows synchronized the positive pressure. So the real pressure the lung sees or is actually then the transpulmonary pressure, the standing pressure. And this can raise high up very fast and lead to high lung volumes. And it's a little bit innate in our ideas that if a patient takes good volumes, he's doing fine. And I think this is an over-underestimated risk at the moment and comes mm. clearly now with the concept of self-inflicted lung injury. So in these patients that have big uh, drawing, uh, big respiratory efforts during uh, respiratory support, even with a tube in, uh, in these patients that have, uh, you see then relative large tidal volumes, or in patients there are have still hemodynamic variability and the variations of your pulse with uh, uh, pulse pressure curve. I think this one you should probably be more active in sedation to take over, uh, to reduce their uh, inspiratory work, to use mm -hmm. their own drive and to control them better. That's probably the best thing to do. Um, and then for the patient, one, patient one, one other question about the patient why they are on invasive ventilation or maybe even um, CPAP, do you use much prone positioning or repositionings of the patients? We use prone positioning uh, in patients with oxygenation problems on the, so with in signs of intrapalmary shunt clearly uh, quite a lot and it makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. Allows you, you to reduce pressures for the pressure because prone positioning is indirectly is a recruiting concept. Mm -hmm. And how about you, Stacey? Do you guys yeah. use that at all? Yeah, same. As, as soon, you know, as long as it's safe for the patient and there's not um, uh, extra complications such as liver surgery or something, then um, then it makes a huge difference actually mm -hmm. with oxygenation problems. 
Okay, great. Um, and I was going to ask you something about extubation, and now I've forgotten what I was going to ask. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, what, when you are getting ready to extubate a patient, so let's, maybe it's not somebody who's just been intubated for a day or two, but someone's been intubated for a longer period of time. Do you, what do you do in terms, do you do spontaneous breathing trials, or do you check the negative inspiratory pressure they can generate? How, how careful are you, or do you just think the patient looks good and, and take the tube out? Last option is probably the only one that we feel comfortable <laughs> knowing that uh, there is really no clear evidence or clear data in favor of one or other approach. I think it's again, it's using your clinical judgment. And if you see that a patient gets more agitated, if you try to wean him, you reduce your pressure support levels, for example. So we, we wean every patient on a pressure support mode, if any possible. Uh, so if you see that it's a bit more agitated, uh, that it means gives you a sign that he's not comfortable. And this is uh, usually a sign that you probably should stay back a little bit. In patients that are really difficult to wean, I think there uh, is, we use nowadays uh, NAVA ventilation mm -hmm. because it has one advantage, not only that is proportional to the patient effort and synchronized and can reduce your support level and see what else. You have a monitoring of his respiratory drive by measuring his diaphragmatic electric activity. And if you start to wean and see that his diaphragmatic activity goes up and as a indices nowadays, it's the tidal volume divided by the EID signal. If this goes up, means he gets less volume, so he's working harder, then it shows you that probably he will fail. Hmm. That's very interesting. And do you do standard SBTs or spontaneous breathing trials before you excavate? Yeah, we do now. We've just um, come to the end of the sandwich trial in the UK, which is station and weaning. Um, and part of that bundle is um, SBTs. And actually, it's, um, I mean, obviously, yet to see what the results are, but I do feel like it has helped us with our weaning. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe at times where we were being a little bit too slow to wean, it's definitely helped with that. Um, and then when you're getting ready to extubate, if you check and there's no leak around the tube, what's your general approach to that? Just take it out anyway, or do you ever use uh, uh, peri-extubation dexamethasone? So, no, we just take the tube out. Because, again, if you look at the literature, what has really been shown, so the leak test is not reliable. We know this for many years now. Also, I learned when I learned uh, about ventilation, do the leak test and cut them on your handbag and listen if you hear something, you know, things like this. But uh, if you had an upper tube size, we just take it out. Uh, and all the other methods, I think, uh, are not, have had not been confirmed. Using dexamethasone as a rule, uh, it's, it's pretty heavy intervention. So if, Rarely a patient fails for an upper airway problem, so it really needs reintubation uh, after that adrenaline aerosols and maybe already dexamethasone the dose. Then we do it for 24 hours, mm -hmm. dexamethasone, and try to do an attempt of a next extubation. If reintubation was difficult, you had some resistance on reintubation, we do it together then with the ENT surgeons uh, to have a a flexible uh, bronchoscopy during extubation, see exactly if there is any uh, post uh, or uh, supra, uh, infrastenous uh, glottic stenosis mm -hmm. or something like this. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you guys use 
Uh, dexamethasone? Um, we do use dexamethasone, um, but uh, not necessarily as a go-to, but certainly if there's a failed extubation, um, then, then we would use it for the build-up for the next extubation. Um, and if there, occasionally if there is no leak, um, but otherwise the patient appears ready for extubation, then, then that's often when dexamethasone will come in handy. I can't tell you a huge amount of the evidence behind that, but um, yeah. it's interesting to hear other practices. I think a, a lot of places uh, practice differently. It probably depends a little bit on, like most of our patients we're extubating are post-operative patients, and so yeah. my experience at different institutions, it depends a little bit on what size endotracheal tube your anesthesia team prefers to use, because at some places we've had a lot of airway swelling and other places not so much. Um, so one last question I wanted to ask about um, invasive ventilation is, for the, how do, you, how do you determine how much air to put in the cuff? If I, I assume you have cuffed endotracheal tubes. Or, well, if, if you're not checking for leaks, are we, you just measuring we, the pressure? At the moment, we have quite a lot of uh, non-cuffed tubes still, okay. which is usually if you don't have a real major uh, respiratory failure with very poor compliance, is not a problem to okay. control a patient. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you have cuff tubes, then you have the two different cuff types. The older ones are now, nowadays the mi micro cuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the micro cuff type, we, we just follow the, the recommendations with measuring the pressure, not air in a volume, measuring the pressure and setting the pressure and control it. Uh, usually, uh, at least at each shift change of nursing, uh, controlling this pressure setting. How about, do you guys do the same? Yeah, um, we do use quite a lot of cuff tubes now, and one of our consultants did quite a lot of work a few years back when the microcuffs came in to raise awareness of the damage that we can be doing when we're um, overinflating the cuffs. Um, so that's been really important work. And then um, understanding the concept of the microfolds. When, when you do deflate the cuff and the damage you can be doing if you do deflate the cuff for a long time um, and how abrasive that can be to the airway. I don't know the right answer. We generally tend not to put air, or not to put very much air at all in the cuff, even, and we don't measure the pressure in there. But we do measure the leak around the tube. And I mean, sometimes it's hard to do, but sometimes you can and try to keep the, that number as low as possible. Um, Peter or Stacy, is there um, something I did not touch on that you feel is really important? Do you have something that you'd like to bring no, up? Not me. Well, just advocating everybody that does use a ventilator should know exactly what he does. He should know exactly the modes he uses and how, what you have to set to make them function correctly. And that's a big issue I've observed over the world. Also, you have to have a basic understanding on how a respiratory system can respond on your intervention means on your ventilator setting or what the ventilator pushes into you. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. That reminds me to just ask you one more question. At your um, hospitals, do you have a dedicated respiratory therapy team in your hospital that helps no, with the ventilators? we are Europeans. We have no respiratory therapists. Mm -hmm. we, have, we teach and work a lot with our nursing. And nursing is in our unit. They work, they do the nursing work plus the respiratory therapist work. So and the I nurses see, will actually change the ventilator settings or the physicians they, With the physician, with the physician advice or with the goals you define, but they, they, they can change the ventilator settings uh, based on 
yeah, on the different analysis, then recognizing our unit as synchronous events, they, 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 they make sure that the, the, the flow settings are correct, time settings are correct. But that is because we, we do the teaching education mm -hmm. in an internal program for them. And that's my point of view, personal, but with my experience previously also in, the, in, in Canada, respiratory therapists for me have the so-called disadvantage they are not at bedside day and night. That's like the doctors. The only person that is bedside and sees the small changes happening in a patient mm -hmm. is the nurse. And the nurse gives us this feedback. The nurse exactly knows what's going on. I mm -hmm. think that's a big advantage and we do not have to wait for the respiratory therapist in a bigger unit coming and half an hour late because he was there. We could not, cannot do the changes immediately. Yeah, that's a good point. And how about in your unit? Do you have respiratory therapists at all? So, so no, we don't. It's, it's exactly same. as Peter describes. Yeah. Um, it depends on what unit you're on as to what the um, program is for nurse weaning and, and nurse interaction with the ventilator. But I would also stress it's so important to educate the team as to modes that you're using. Um, for instance, like um, BiPAP, um, you know, pressure regulated is, is our bread and butter. And if we switch to volume control pressure regulated, then that's great if the patient is weaning and improving. But if, if you know, if the nurse isn't educated at the bedside and doesn't recognize the pressures needed are going up, then the, the ventilator will adjust and um, actually the patient maybe just needs resuctioning or, or some simple maneuver. Right. Um, so understanding the mode and what it's doing is so important and that education is really important. That's really interesting. I, I, would, I would bet that the uh, physicians and the nurses in Europe are much more educated about how to use a ventilator than we are in the States because of the respiratory therapists, um, that interface that we go through. Um, any other last minute points? Well, no, thank you very much. It's been really, really educational for me. Different system and I've learned a lot and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you sir. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to look for other episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Or subscribe to get all the latest episodes as they're released. Once again, find out more at our website, pcics.org. The song I Don't Know by Graves was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution.